Katie Herzog, what's up? Jesse, there's some big big news in my life. Preggers? <laughs> That's physically impossible. No, I made a friend. Mm, that seems about as likely as you being preggers. It's, I know. It's actually almost as, as unlikely. No, I, I made an actual friend, and uh, I went to my new friends for dinner the other night, and she told me a little story that I'd like to tell you. Please, go ahead. Okay, so she lives close to Bainbridge Island, which is this very it's it's very like it's not like shishi, but because it's it's like Seattle and like even rich people here drive Subarus, but it's very upper class. Like the governor lives there, so it's a lot of people who are like wearing LL Bean and REI, but they're actually millionaires and sometimes billionaires. Uh, and it's it's very beautiful. It's a nice place to live. Very white. Very you know you can sort of picture it, right? You're picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah, I'm picking it up. Okay, so she's my friend is a kid, and she took her kid to Pride, to Bainbridge Pride, and her her ex, the kid's father, was he's like he's like listens to a lot of Joe Rogan and presumably follows lips of TikTok, and he was concerned about this kid going to Pride because because of the groomers because of the groomers. <laughs> I, I'm joking. No, the, literally, he was concerned because of the groomers, but she was like, no, this Bainbridge Island, like it's family Pride, like there's not going to be like drag queens there, like it, it's, this is just not the kind of Pride where you have to worry about that kind of stuff. And also, like, just trying to, I think, like talk him down about something that he's like concerned about because he sees a lot of this, a lot of this information online that maybe describes a real phenomenon, but probably a much smaller phenomenon than you would think from the media coverage. You know what I'm saying? I'm, by the way, I'm recording from the lap of a drag queen <laughs> who is reading me a story. <laughs> Abigail Schreier's book. <laughs> oh my God. Drag queens, RGD drag queen story hour. There's, yeah. uh, there's some money in that. Yeah. So, uh, so she takes her kid to Bainbridge, to Pride on Bainbridge Island. And it all, it's pretty normal, but at one point, there's a, a like a drag queen MC, and she hears the drag queen MC say say this on the mic to everybody: "If you're thinking about taking hormones, just do it." <laughs> Jesus Christ! Is this like a plant? <laughs> Did like the Heritage Foundation hire this? Oh my God! All right, that's what she said. That like if this if you needed like a parody of like a conservative's nightmare about what a pride would be, this would be it. A drag queen on stage telling children at the family friendly pride event to just go ahead and get hormones. Oh man, the discourse, huh? <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, there's been some uh, some some weird shit going in uh, going on in my area. There's this other town called Port Townsend, very similar to Bainbridge Island in some ways, prettier in some ways. And have you been following what's going on in Port Townsend? Yeah, it's a unfortunate incident involving, uh, I guess, an 80-year-old woman in a locker room. Yeah, an 80-year-old woman at the YMCA was banned from the YMCA because she saw a trans woman. She didn't realize that this person was a trans woman. She thought it was a, a guy in the locker room. Um, it was an employee of the Y, and this person was there, like, watching girls. It sounds really creepy when you say this, like, watching little girls change, but that's it was like part of their job was to like be there in the locker room. That's not gonna. That's not gonna mollify to anyone. <laughs> either way, <laughs> either way, either way you say it, it doesn't sound great. But it is apparently somebody's job. Like you have an adult in the room when there are kids there. So this woman, this eight year old woman who swims at the Y, she was she was in the, the locker room and she heard what she perceived as a male voice and saw these little girls in the changing room. And she's like an advocate for vict victims of domestic violence and rape and things like that. And so she basically confronted this this Y employee and said, do you have a penis? And the Y employee said, none of your business. And I think there's been a lot of bad reporting on this. Like some a, a Y employee told the press that she escalated this and said like some pretty fucked up things to the employee. I don't think that's actually true because I listened to an interview with this woman on Quillette and she's not like a quote unquote turf. Like she didn't seem to realize that this was a trans person. She just perceived – she just thought there was a guy in the dressing room. Yeah. So there was a protest up there and it's like protests for banning from the Y. And I'm not even sure that the people who organize protests are like gender critical feminists. I think they might have been more conservative women, although I'm not totally sure about that. Anyway, so there's this big counter protest. There appears to have been some of the women where – I'm not sure if they were like technically assaulted, but there was some definitely some yelling in faces, things like that. And um, and the, the and Port Townsend, the mayor who's who was like elected not by the people but by the city council or some sort of board, who's very young and has like a very strange Twitter presence where this is has tweeted some shit that 
you would not like about fucking dogs that you would not expect a mayor to tweet. The mayor of Port Townsend tweeted about fucking dog pro or con. Pro yeah, or but con. like in. <laughs> Well, I think pro, but only only dead dogs. Okay, it was like a, it's like an ethical dead question. Like the dog would dies. You fuck a dead dog? If it was your family right. pet and you really right. loved it, so it's not just about the sex, right? Right, it's okay. about romance. That's to- totally about totally normal for a mayor to tweet. That. It's like a like an Ayla question, kind of. Um, yes. Anyway, so the mayor issued some proclamation, not like you know some like. So there's this protest, and the mayor issues some proclamation. And the stranger, my former employer, they uh, they tweeted this yesterday. Turfs might want to rethink their day trips to Port Townsend. Port Townsend responds to transphobic bullying with trans-inclusive proclamation. This is an, an article that went up on the blog yesterday. And I just want to say – So they're, they're like doing a press release for the mayor basically? Oh, absolutely. They didn't, they didn't go and, and observe the – they didn't go up and like watch the protests at all. They didn't interview the, the woman who was kicked out of the, the Y. They didn't interview the trans woman. It's just a press release basically. Here's what I want to say about that. Tourists may want to rethink their day trips to Port Townsend. No. <laughs> I'm going to keep going to Port Townsend. I go there all the time. It's a lovely city. I will be continuing to go to Port Townsend. Oh, man. It's just like the next- You can't stop me. I will be going there. I go to the beaches up there all the time. There's a great pizza place. There's good coffee places. It's a lovely town. It's this like Victorian town on the water. I might move there. Just because a spite move, a spite move. Yes, that's normal. Oh, I've always, I have always wanted to do a spite move. That would be so the cojones required for a spite move. We should uh, start a crowdfunding page to get you to move to Port Townsend just to annoy their mayor. You know, what? it's gonna be, it's gonna have to be a really, really high crowdfund because it is a very expensive. This is actually, this is the town that I would live in if I could live anywhere. It would be Port Townsend, but it's too expensive. I, I, I will consider increasing your cut of the podcast from ten to twelve percent. If you have any say over my cut of the podcast. Um, wow, poor Townsend. I don't know. I'm going to – this is really annoying. I did not want to read more about this story, but you – Well, the thing is it's a compl- – it really is a complex issue, right? You have – imagine your grandmother in a bathroom and she sees – Wait, hold she, on. Hold on. Okay, I'm, with you. I'm, I'm with you so far. And your grandmother, she's changing now. She's putting on her pantyhose. Are you with me? You with me? (laughs) And she sees what she perceives as a man in the bathroom because your grandmother is 80 years old and she's not aware that there are like that trans people are everywhere, as they say with clap emojis. This is this is a real complex issue. And it bothers me that the coverage from the paper that I used to work with is just this like screaming fuck turfs. I mean, that was literally the like little tag on their on their their website was fuck turfs. Like it, it is complex. This is not black and white. It's about balancing rights and safety and, and people's feelings, including the trans women who I do feel bad for, although she's now crowdfunding her, her transition surgeries and she's made quite a bit of money. So um, it looks like she's going to be fine. I think the way to resolve these issues is just with online outrage and tweets and crowdfunding. What more do we need for a well-functioning democracy? That is better for us. Yeah. Uh, Katie, what is the name of this podcast <laughs> uh, just the podcast it's just a podcast this week yeah there's i couldn't think of an adjective this is boxer reported and i'm katie herzog and i'm jesse single and today we're gonna talk about an incredibly colorful blow-up at a theater company we are we're going to chicago this week we're also going to talk a little bit about a uh, controversy that unfolded on this very platform substack.com right it's com I should know this by now. It's blocktoreported.org. Well, but that's because you can do whatever. Blocktoreported.org. It's a charity, 501c3. Uh, But first, why don't we talk a little bit about everyone's favorite type of potentially violent religious proclamation, the fatwa. I do like a good fatwa. What is your favorite fatwa? Well, uh, fuck, I think I only know one fatwa. Are there any good anti-turf fatwas? I'm sure. This is reminding me of when Rushdie was on Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's very sad. But yes, Salmon Rushdie uh, assaulted rather viciously. Did you just call him Salmon? (laughs) Salmon, Salmon. I think he did. Salmon Rushdie. I'm sorry. I'm tired, Katie. I'm so tired. (laughs) I'm so tired, y'all. Autocorrect. (laughs) Salmon. I'm so worried if I say it again. Not a funny story. Uh, viciously attacked. CNN just. Dis- I did think of a joke though. I didn't tweet <laughs> no. it. I I did. What was it? I well, I thought of two jokes, and I didn't. And I was like about to tweet them, and then I saw that he was like actually really injured, so I stopped myself. Well, he's alive now. So what's the joke? What are the jokes? Yeah, the first one that I was going to tweet was like like written like a headline. 
what the attack on Salman Rushdie says about Islamophobia. <laughs> what was it? And then the second, the second one was I, I hadn't really quite worked out the wording yet. But you know what? I'm just going to throw it into this segment and see if you laugh. Okay. Um, Just continue. And I'm okay with this, and we're going to leave it in because I'm sure Rushdie would defend your right to make jokes about Rushdie being stabbed. I think he would, too. So, yes, uh, CNN just described uh, his injuries as, like, life-changing. He couldn't speak at first. It's, it's just horrible. and it comes- Yeah, he's he's going to lose an eye. He was – he's in, like, the nerves in his arm were severed. Yeah. Um, so – This is just a, like, crazy reaction to signing the Harper's letter. <laughs> That was, that like was the joke. joke. That was the joke. Someone else tried to make a joke about it, but people didn't get that it was a joke. It was something along the lines of like <laughs> in the general neighborhood of like almost he deserved it for signing the Harper's letter. It was obviously a joke. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody got it. It was a joke. I'm glad I sat on that one. Barry Weiss had a good um, article and, and episode sort of taking us through some of the history of this fatwa, which I was mostly new to me. There's this crazy, crazy audio uh, interview with um, British Muslims just calling for his death and burning his book. And it's it's very depressing. Uh, there have been a lot of deaths associated with like his translators who have been attacked and yeah. killed. I, I didn't... And not just his translators, like people in like protest against the book, like like large numbers of people being killed in these sort of mobs. Yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, I don't know if there's some sort of death count, actual like uh, official death count affiliated with this book, but it is not small. It's not small, no. Yeah, riots. It's it's insane. It's just, it's sort of a worst case example of what happens when like deranged, righteous group think, yeah. Um, so because we live in a very solipsistic era and because to be fair, Rushdie had signed that accursed document, the Harper's Letter, He's basically our co-author. More or less. In a sense, I'd like to think we retroactively inspired Satanic Verses. Although maybe, or maybe I should be distancing myself from it. Um, People immediately started tying this into like the circa 2022 cancel culture debate and the intra-left culture wars in various ways. Does that strike you as like completely off base like they're entirely different universes or are you a little bit sympathetic to the idea that that his attack and his ordeal has something to do with the other stuff going on these days it did strike me as off base because i mean you can you can you can draw these parallels but i think there is some danger of attributing of like making everything monocausal in sort of the james Lindsay fashion like Rushdie was not attacked because of wokeness. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Right. I didn't mean that. I just mean right, like right. the idea that – okay. So uh, the J.K. Uh, Rowling thing, she experienced death – has experienced a lot of death threats, including one when she was talking about this. Like do you think there's any connection between any aspect of Rushdie and Rowling, taking into account that Rowling was not uh, you know, uh, targeted by an entire state? as what happened when, when you know, the fatwa against Rushdie came well, down. Are they just so different we shouldn't talk about them? In this no, way? I mean, there's an obvious commonality, which is that they both signed the Harper's letter with us. <laughs> right. I'm not sure how I feel about this. Obviously, like, so Rushdie published the book in 88, and this violent rhetoric has not stopped. It's probably only increased because of the advent of the internet and social media. I don't know. It, it does feel a little... The connection does feel a little fuzzy to me, but but explain it, please. Make the connection for me. I mean, I've been struggling too, but what what I realized is like what all this comes down to is like how we should respond to claims that speech causes harm or words are violence in the argo of the the Zoomers. Uh, well, and an unfortunate number of like forty something people on Twitter. So. Uh, what this made me think of, and people are going to yell at me for making a direct comparison. I'm not making a direct comparison, so bear with me while I explain what I am saying. But I've written a little bit about what happened uh, in England when they were debating whether to make self-ID easier, when they were debating the uh, reform of the Gender Recognition Act, which we've covered a little bit on this show. And I found in... Th- and this is self-ID for for trans people, for anybody who hasn't been listening yeah, to Yeah, basically... Right now, the, the the status quo in England is balancing of different rights. You can have single space, single sex spaces in some areas. Um, this reform, which was actually spearheaded by the Tories, would have made it brought the system much closer to full self ID, like reduce the remaining barriers to becoming legally the other sex. And 
there was a debate about this because it was a proposed public policy. Proposed. It hadn't been passed. It had to go through that period where people debated. Here's what I wrote in a review of uh, Helen Joyce's book. Uh, my review was published last September. And what's the book called? Uh, Trans. It's basically a book that is mostly about her opposition to self-ID. So this is me. Recently, England and Wales considered making it much easier for trans people to obtain a so-called gender recognition certificate, bringing the process in line with the precepts of self-ID. The process included a period of public consultation, and during it, Joyce writes, feminist activists attempting to organize public events opposing self-ID were met with constant threats of venue cancellations, intimidation from protesters, at least one assault of a 61-year-old woman, and other obstacles to simply expressing public opposition to a pro-policy change. Dot, dot, dot. In light of the evidence she marshals, it is difficult to disagree with Joyce's assessment that, quote, intimidation and harassment are carried out openly and proudly, end quote, against many of those who question the tenets of gender identity ideology out loud. Again, this is not remotely close to a giant riot of people burning a book and and killing, you know, uh, alleged Rushdie supporters. But to me... There was not much of a pushback to this assault on a woman named Maria McLaughlin. Um, she was assaulted by a trans activist in Speaker's Corner, which is a space ironically devoted to free speech. Quote from a news report, Wolf wearing a hoodie, Tara Wolf, the assaulter, wearing a hoodie and with multicolored leggings ran up to Miss McLaughlin and slapped her, sending the camera spinning from her hand and break it beyond repair. She was found guilty of assault in order to pay a fine. Julie Bindle uh, this is from the Scotsman. Julie Bindle, the keynote speaker at an Ed- Edinburgh University event, which discussed the future of women's sex-based rights, said she was verbally abused, lunged at, and almost punched in the face by a trans woman as she left the building. She thanked university security staff for protecting her and said she was still considering whether to press charges. So there is this climate of endless exaggeration of threat. If we even debate being against this policy that isn't passed yet, Trans people will die. And we've seen this ourselves, where even mild disagreement with things like when kids should go on puberty blockers or hormones or or self-ID leads to pretty constant claims that you are causing profound harm. Like just in my own experience, Boing Boing, you know, said uh, me and Alice Drager are mosquitoes, endlessly dehumanizing language. Uh, I'm eliminationist. I'm causing genocide. And my argument is not that any of this is the same as being targeted like Rushdie or that, you know, we've been through what Rowling has been. My argument is that in a climate we're disagreeing with a you know public policy proposal that isn't enacted yet is treated as genocide and where violence and physical force to prevent people from even speaking their opinion on it is seen as acceptable, that is just going to escalate and escalate and escalate. And especially in the period uh, Helen Joyce is writing about in this book, I don't think it's that crazy to say that there's like at least a whiff, you know, uh, feminist groups having to organize in secret and not reveal venue locations until the last minute and being met with like mass protesters trying to physically prevent them from entering a venue that isn't is that entirely different from like what a dissident has to do in a theocratic state? I know it's not the same because you don't have the state support. You're not fighting against a state, but it's like it's the same thing of treating speech as so dangerous you can't even let people express themselves. I think there's a little bit of a parallel there and maybe it's not worth making because people will accuse you of saying it's the exact same thing, but but you don't think there's like a whiff of similarity there? No, I, I think that is a good argument. And in fact, I think that the state, because this is the UK and they will send police to your house for wrong think on Twitter, the state actually does have a much greater hand in terms of of, of speech. I mean, it's not a wrong. We don't want to overstretch that. But yes, there have been no, at this of point it's not. multiple yeah. documented cases. If you tweet, if you say basically express an anti-self-ID opinion – ridiculously, you will sometimes be questioned by the police in your home, which is just like, that's where you're really making meaningful, albeit small steps toward like a police state. That's insane. Yeah. And I think the other parallel is the moral certitude that the people denouncing JK Rowling have or rolling. Have we ever established that? It's really a bad sign about the quality of our podcast. (laughs) Someone said it it rhymes with bowling, right? Rolling. Rolling. Uh, Have... You know, whether you are an Islamic extremist or a trans activist being convinced that you are so correct in this thing uh, that it is worth 
either shutting down speech or attacking people physically. I do think there are some parallels there. So, okay, I, I, I buy it a little bit. I do, you know, this this question of like whether words can be violent violence. I think it's sort of a dumb question because it's so abstract, right? But I heard a story. I happened to listen to a story yesterday that sort of changed my mind on this. So I listened to a podcast yesterday about Michelle Carter. Does that name ring any bells to you? I don't think so, no. Okay, so she is the she was a teenager at a time. She was 17 and she is the girl or the woman now who was tried and convicted of I believe manslaughter after she urged her then boyfriend Oh, the to suicide. suicide to and it's him. I didn't know much about this case, but it's pretty fucked up and she sent this she was in a relationship with this guy None of his, like, family knew about it, but she was in a relationship with this guy. It was long distance, not even that far long distance, like an hour long distance. They had they mostly communicated on via text message and phone. And she urged him to kill himself, and he did it. And then she was later charged and convicted. And before I sort of heard this podcast, I thought, oh, God, that seems like such a slippery slope, like from a free speech argument, and people are responsible for their own actions. And then when I heard more about what happened— and what it seems like happened is that this 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 girl, this is my interpretation of this, she wanted to be – she wanted the social clout that comes with being like a widow or something like that. So she was in a relationship with this kid who was depressed and she told him thousands of times to kill himself. She helped him figure out how to do it, like sent him links to different ways of doing it. He was in his – he ended up dying by carbon monoxide poisoning. He's in his truck. He texts her and says, I'm going to get out of the truck. And she says, don't you fucking dare. And it really seems as though she convinced this kid to kill himself. And I think there are still lots of money ethical issues and there's still slippery slope arguments. But in that case, I did – it sort of changed my mind. I thought, OK, in this case, like word, her words were violent. She convinced this guy to kill himself in a way that – and he otherwise probably would not have done this. And she seems to have done it because she wanted to she wanted to capitalize off of being the girlfriend of the boy who killed himself. That's a yeah, it's a very dark story. I know I want to, what what was the name of the podcast? I don't remember. But there's like movies made about it and there's <laughs> this incredibly moving <laughs> podcast that changed my mind on a key issue. What's it called? I don't know. Fuck no you, idea. Jesse. There were three hosts, I'll tell you that much. Did you say hose or host? <laughs> it was three hosts. It was hosted by three hoes. Uh yeah. So, yeah, that's very sad. I, I don't think the question was ever like, do words sometimes directly lead to harm? It's just usually we would restrict that to cases like that or like if you incite a mob, go kill this guy or like let's march to the Capitol. Those are Who cases would do where, that? Yeah, not that anyone no would do that. No one would do that. I think it's more this idea that there's a dir- such a direct causal link between opposing a reform to the GRA. Right. Co- ideas. This I- idea of, yeah. of, of the GRA or in, in, in Rushdie's case, satirizing the Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. Or like, you know, the, the Democrat <laughs> – the Demer, the the Equality Act, um, which you know basically tries to write gender identity into civil rights law, uh, sort of arguably supplanting sex. This idea that if you're and it's, it's not going to pass, but like the idea that if you're against that, you're doing violence to trans people is an incredible exaggeration of the nature of of threat. Uh, and I think when those sorts of ideas catch on, and when there aren't within the community making those arguments like breaks, like people saying. Maybe don't assault the woman at Speaker's Corner. Maybe we should tamp down the eliminationist uh, rhetoric and these claims that we're being violently assaulted. It just it gets worse and worse. And I think Rushdie's a case of that, where obviously it was supercharged by a literal fatwa, but like it within the community, they're just it was probably hard to tamp down on it because you don't want to be in the mob sites, but it just gets worse and worse. So all I'm saying is like there's there's a whiff of some similar human impulse. In especially what happened in England with this stuff. Okay. Whiff granted. Whiff granted. The whiff has been granted. Um, okay. So the other thing I wanted to talk about before we get to your theater story is this controversy within Substack.com. Katie, do you know who Sam Thielman is? Not really. I know. Can anyone, can you really know another person when you think about it? No, you, really, you never do. You never do. That's why whenever someone asks me if I know someone, I say no. Yeah. But then I explain. Oh, no. You know, people ask me like frequently, they ask me how you're doing. And I always say, how am I supposed to know? Yeah. We don't. We literally, we have, 
zero. We log on at a predetermined time every week. My assistant sends you sends your assistant the time to log on. We log uh-huh. on. No preparation. Yeah. No other communication. And the weird thing is that our assistant is the same person. Yes. Well, but I don't. I don't like the idea of sharing an assistant. So sometimes, anyway, it's very complicated. But yeah, we don't know each other at all. I know Sam Thielman mostly from seeing him pop up on Twitter uh, as like a lefty beardy bro. Uh, I, I have a beard. I'm allowed to say that. I'm allowed to use that. You have slur. a beard? Well, a little bit. Stubble. Is it patchy? Everything about me is patchy. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, start calling you patches. So I'm allowed to use the slur beardy bro, the B word. Um, he edits a number of – he's a writer, lefty writer, editor. He edits substacks like Aaron Rupar, Jonathan Katz, you know, some of our favorites. Dude, oh my god, the Spe- worst. And Spencer Ackerman. Spencer is like a – Should we leave Substack in protest that Substack also <laughs> is a platform for platform Aaron Rupar and Joshua Rupar. Katz? Yeah. The harm caused by misleadingly edited videos cannot be understood. Is does he actually write, or is it just uh, is it just like Katie videos do, edited? Do with you co- think okay. that I have looked at Aaron Rupert's <laughs> Substack? We say of this guy who probably makes five times as much money as we do, as was explained in um, by Spencer Ackerman, uh, whose blog this centers on, or whose website this centers on. Uh, Substack get, provides money to creators that the creators can then use to hire editing help or other help. But Substack pays the help directly. So Sam Thielman was getting paid directly by Substack to edit Spencer Ackerman's and these other guys' um, newsletters. So I like that the Substack revolution has created these sorts of jobs. I think there's something exciting to that idea of like one editor working with multiple publications. In July, Spencer Ackerman, big national security reporter, award-winning, in a post edited by Thielman, he announced that his contract was up and he was leaving Substack. The lead image is the lyrics to a song by Off With Their Heads, I'm counting down the days till I can get the fuck out of this place, which seems sort of aggressive, but the post itself wasn't that provocative. Like it just, it was pretty mild in its critique of Substack. And, And what was his critique? You know, he was a little bit, he didn't like the way they, um, was it Hamish or Chris Best wrote a post about Luke O'Neill leaving? Oh, Luke right. O'Neill, who's himself very That was crazy. Hamish. They linked, uh, he linked to um, something um, that this sci-fi writer had written criticizing it. But Spencer's post was like a three out of 10 on the Substack discourse scale. It was did like- he, Did he bring no in Graham near. Linehan, Jesse Single, Clint Greenwald? No, he didn't. He didn't. He, no. In one of Ackerman, Ackerman, like everyone else who leaves Substack, went to Ghost, which we should remind everyone has less content moderation than Substack. Ghost is where we're going to go if we get kicked off of Substack because, A, their fees are very low, and B, all of these people who left Substack complaining about the like transphobic content That's on amazing. Substack, we could just run them all off of Ghost. Yeah. Jude Doyle, just- Jude Doyle is going to have to go back to Substack. This is going to basically be like the fugitive. We're there, Harrison Ford, and we're going to track every, Tommy every Lee house outhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Ghost, Substack, there's nowhere to hide. Back to Patreon. Katie the Turf will find you. <laughs> so, in one of after Ackerman moves to Ghost, um, he hands the mic to Thielman so he can explain that, in his view, Substack retaliated against him merely for editing that critical post. Basically what happened is after this post goes up announcing sub, uh, Spencer's leaving Substack, someone from Substack writes to Thielman, considering your and Spencer's post about the move off the platform, we are glad to release you from future commitments to work with Substack. I'm sure you'll agree it makes sense for both sides. As such, we'll be winding down your other Substack-funded editing relationships. With that, Substack cut off uh, Thielman's uh, contracts with these other writers who had nothing to do with Spencer. That seems bad. It is back. At the risk of getting of getting locked out of our Substack account, I disagree with that move. I mean, we should be clear here that Hamish McKenzie said, quote, if you guys ever criticize us, I will fucking kill you. That's a direct quote. Yeah, it's the, the free speech platform. It, I mean, it does seem bad. It, it seems to conflict with their own stated values. Uh, and it's retaliatory against somebody who didn't write the post, just edited the post. And you shouldn't be held – like, what is Sam supposed to do? Tell who, – who was the author of the post? Spencer Ackerman. Is he supposed to censor Spencer Ackerman because of his his relationship with Substack? That would be very yeah. unethical. So understandably, a bunch of people on Twitter pointed out that this was unfair and they came to the defense of Thielman. It was sort of the that click hole thing, like heartbreaking, the worst person you know just made a good point. So it was like a lot of the usual – most of the past controversy about Substack has been 
completely bad faith and ridiculous, not least because it involves a bunch of morally righteous people moving to ghosts, which has less moderation. Um, but this was a fair point. You know, people treated it as proof that Substack wasn't really committed to its stated principles of open discourse, civil disagreement, and so on. Substack, to its credit, backpedaled. Hamish McKenzie announced on Twitter, having reflected on this and spoken to Sam, I do think we fucked up here. It's on me. We've talked to Sam and we're paying him the full value of the affected contracts. We're sorry to Sam for overstepping. Uh, Happy ending. We can move on, right? Wait, does that mean – okay, so they've paid him the full value of the contracts, but does that mean that they're going to give him future work or is he still cut off? My sense is given that Sam said he was happy with how it turned out, I don't think there's any restrictions on him working for Substack going forward. My sense is that they paid him off and he's fine with it. Either way, Sam, everyone involved directly seems happy with the way it went down. Uh, I was glad to see this. I think Substack shot himself in the foot. You know, a bad move, maybe just a knee-jerk move. But because I'm an obsessive weirdo, as I was watching this unfold, I had this memory tickling the back of my brain. I entered some Twitter search terms, and I found this thread uh, from Sam Thielman in January of this year, around the time Mike Pesca's show, The Gist, returned from its hiatus. Katie, do you think we need to do a very quick Gist controversy refresher? Oh, uh, yes. Okay. So this was early 2021. It was one of the worst and dumbest reckoning era media freakouts. Basically, Mike Pesca ended up being suspended indefinitely from Slate because in a Slack conversation, he simply argued that there shouldn't be blanket restrictions on white staffers mentioning the N-word, you know, where it's contextually appropriate. So he wasn't he wasn't fired. He had used it once in unreleased audio in, I think, 2019, been quote-unquote investigated, because that's ridiculous. Well, well, let's clarify here. He said it on a podcast about the use of the N-word that never aired. That segment never aired because they decided not to use it. He faced an HR complaint in, I think, 2019 just for having mentioned it in a podcast about mentioning the term. Slate has used the term regularly on its written content. So yes. this, the initial HR yes. complaint was bullshit. He was cleared and he you know, continued working there. But this time around, he's, he's effectively ousted from this very successful show that made Slate a lot of money just for arguing the case. In a Slack channel where, as he told us on our podcast, that was what you did in the Slack channel. You argued about like what Slate – Slate has always been an argumentative place. So this was a ridiculous ouster. He had to go through some stuff to get his show back and it it ended up being okay because he now is independent control of the show. But this was like – this made Slate look incredibly bad, I thought. Yeah, and for people who are curious about the story here, go back. We'll put this in the show notes. We did a we did an interview with Mike after he relaunched uh, his show, The Gist, and that gives you more context for the story. Here's what Sam Thielman tweeted when Pesca's show came back, which you know revived the conversation a bit. It's exciting that all the centrist culture war pawn scum are relitigating Slate firing Mike Pesca, while Tennessee public schools ban books about the Holocaust. Really hard to illustrate any clearer than that how little these freaks care about anyone who's not in their group chat. What if both are bad? What if my balls? Go dodge donation calls from Middlebury, useless assholes. He sounds very pleasant. This is the 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 genuine level of pleasantness of, of lefty beardy bros on Twitter. Uh, he also had thoughts on Donald McNeil Jr. That's a whole other controversy at the Times. So we'll include a link in the show notes saying that he obviously deserved to be fired. So... I was curious about this because doesn't it seem like Thielman was arguing that if worse stuff is going on in the world, like Tennessee state GOP crap, it's bad to be focused on one journalist getting fired or treated unfairly? Very good point. Very good point. I mean, books are being banned in Tennessee. Books about the Holocaust. Ukrainians are being murdered. Yeah. Salman Rushdie was just was just fucking stabbed. Yeah. Salman Rushdie was just was just stabbed. You just you said Salmon again. Salman Rushdie was just stabbed. And Sam Thielman is taking up space from that discourse to complain that he was treated unfairly by Substack. All this this lefty pawn scum. Anyway, blah, 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 and so on. I decided to be a little bit provocative. So I tweeted, replies are off. <laughs> I quote retweeted Sam's original rant. Replies are off, but I'm curious whether Sam still feels this way. Substack just unjustly canceled a couple of his gigs before 180-ing, before reversing itself. When it was his job and his ability to support his family on the line, for whatever reason, quote, there's bigger stuff going on, end quote, didn't cut it. Um, this was interesting because it led to like a really, you know, I thought healthy, civil, substantive back and forth between Sam and I and the DMs, actually. No way. Yeah, it didn't. He quote me and said, hi, Jesse, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, that seems uh, more likely. You know, it's just the level of fucking hypocrisy, the level of lack of any sort of empathy. 
Ackerman noted that Sam has a kid to feed. That's true. Sam uh, Sam Thielman has a young kid. But you know who else has a kid to feed is Mike Pesca. The lack of any sort of fucking empathy when someone is getting run out of journalism or mainstream journalism on the most ridiculous, sketchy charges, and then to turn around and present your own situation as a sob story seven, eight months later, I, I found this ridiculous. And I what really annoyed me was the projection of being like, these guys don't care about anyone who isn't in the group chat. That's exactly what Sam's doing. He didn't right. care about Mike Pesca because like his friends don't like Mike Pesca. P- Pesca is a centrist pond scum, white dude. Like it's, it's they're. I don't think these guys are doing a good job representing leftism because leftism should be skeptical of managerial power and should all else being equal and in a reasonable way support workers over employers. These guys will turn on a dime and support management if it's someone unpopular to their crew who gets fired. And Jesse, I, I was like sort of watching this and somebody, I don't remember if it was Sam or somebody else, said something about, uh, you know, Sometimes, like being an asshole, you could be fired for being an asshole, being an unpleasant. Was that Sam, an unpleasant person? I think it was. I think it was some some other Twitter lefty Twitter person who had like decent. I don't know, four thousand followers or something. Yeah, this is. But this is their belief system. If you're an asshole or if you're racist, as they determine, mm-hmm. you can get fired and it's justified. Well, so maybe Sam's an asshole. Is it possible that Substack released him from his contract prematurely because he's an asshole? Because he, he sounds like an asshole. Yeah, we haven't done a full investigation. He comes off as a giant raging prick on Twitter. So, What if, sort of investigation would we have to do to find out if Sam is actually an asshole? We're going to get our best people on it. Okay. Uh, yeah, if that's the standard, then yes, I guess it's okay to fire. I mean... It, the lack of any sort of underlying principles from people who just sort of have this affect that they're the true leftists and everyone else is a problem and people two inches to the right of them are going to take down the movement. They're completely full of shit and they shouldn't be taken seriously. And I guess I got fixated on this, but like, think about what it means if you're Mike Pesca and you're a fucking a dude with like a family to support and, and you're relying on this and you risk losing your job. It's a big deal. You should have a little fucking sympathy. I mean, the unfortunate thing about having principles is that you and I are in the position of now defending Sam from a company that we like, Substack, Yeah, because he shouldn't have been fired. Which I hate. Yeah. I This makes me very uncomfortable that I have to defend this walking bag of beer. <laughs> That's like, as that. see, I don't have an envy to get as like, centrist, pond scum, asshole, douchebag, suck my balls. Like, that's the best I can do in terms of insulting language, walking bag of beard hair. Piss on you. Piss on you. As James Lindsay would say. <laughs> you woke moralist. What was it? <laughs> Jordan Peterson, what did he say? Oh my God. Up yours, woke moralist. We'll see who cancels who. Yeah, that was it. Up yours, woke moralist. We'll see who cancels who. Uh, all right. Should we do housekeeping? Let's do it. Yes, housekeeping time. Everyone's favorite time. We are blocked and reported. We're a podcast, blockedandreported.org. If you join our premium subscription program, if you become one of our primos, A, we will legally make you our primo. A cousin will sign the paperwork. You will be our cousin. B, you will gain access to at least three extra episodes of this podcast a month. C, we're more likely to donate kidneys to you if it ever comes up. Absolutely. If someone asked me for a kidney, I would first ask if they um, subscribed to my podcast. wouldn't matter if they were mm-hmm. family. Nothing else matters. C, we should add, uh, with a little foreshadowing, we're going to give Primo's uh, first notification and chance to buy tickets for our live events, right? Which are actually going to happen, hopefully, this this hopefully. year. <laughs> this has happened. Like, there's been five instances. We seem to be really close to putting together some live events. So, yeah, we're going to... We've seemed to be very close before, but this time we're even closer. This is like Beavis and Butthead trying to have sex. That's like where we're at. It's a terrifying image. No, that's the whole thing. They're trying to... Sorry, have, do you not know Beavis and Butthead? Of course I know Beavis and Butthead. Well, having sex with each other? Do it. No, they want to do it with girls, and they've never been able to. Well, the image that immediately popped in my head was Beavis and Butthead having sex with each other. Well, that's on you. That's which your is issues. horrifying. Like, you can't control your brain. There's no such thing as... Our people. podcast is like Beavis and Butthead having sex with one if another. If you go to blockedandreported.org <laughs> and join us for $5 a month, that is also a great way to support the show. The reason we can continue to do this and don't have to go get real jobs at Whole Foods is because of our primos. So please join us, blockchainreported.org. This is your money is the reason that the weird people on Twitter can't affect us at all. We are uncancelable thanks to our primos. 
you're a shield for us against their beard hair that they can shoot out. Like, um, can porcupines actually do that? You know nature. I don't know. Anyway, also check out our subreddit, blockchainreporter.reddit.com. Anything else, Katie? Uh, you can email us at blockchainreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Katie, give me some theater kid drama. So our story today, Jesse, this starts a few years back at the mid-sized Chicago theater, Victory Gardens. Have you ever been to Victory Gardens? I have not. Uh, it was founded in 1974. And from the very beginning, they were known for being progressive on issues like race and, and sexuality. And in 2019, the then artistic director, his name was Che Yu. He'd been working in that capacity for about 10 years. He resigned in 2019. And Yu was both gay and BIPOC, if Asians count. Do Asians count this week? Uh, I don't know. I need to check the char- charts in the other room. I think only like Hmong people count. I'm not sure what he is. I don't know if like South Koreans count. Um, anyway, so Yu was known for bringing a younger, more diverse audience to the theater. He resigned in 2019. And then the following year, in May 2020, the board announced that you would be replaced by a woman named Erica Daniels. And she'd already been serving as executive director. So they sort of unilaterally decided they were going to move her into this other position. And this did not go over well within the theater. Members of the theater, they complained that there wasn't a transparent national search. And then there's this other thing that they didn't explicitly mention in their public statements, but was referenced in a petition to the board. I think this may have had something to do with it. Erica Daniels is a white woman. Okay, so some in the theater, specifically the Playwrights Ensemble, which is a group of playwrights and dramatists like working within the company who all would stage a certain number of plays there within a certain number of years, they resigned in protest. And according to the New York Times, they, quote, blasted the board for not communicating with the theater's artists or for conducting a national search when it came to replacing you. This is a quote from an open letter that the playwrights posted on Medium. This is a theater where the voice of the writer and creator is valued, but for months we were told that our voices were irrelevant and waited for days and days to hear from anyone in the institution after the news was announced. After being told we would be in conversation about any developments, we ended up hearing about the change in leadership along with everybody else. We are hereby resigning as a unified collective. So incidentally, this was actually the second time the Playwrights Ensemble had left in mass because in 2021, shortly before, shortly after you was hired, he forcibly retired the 14 members of the Playwrights Ensemble in order to bring in a younger, more diverse voices. This was a massive controversy at the time. And you, he won a number of critics and enemies out of this, like sort of the old guard versus the new guard. But by the time he left, he was generally well-liked and respected. But even before that, in 2008, there was another controversy over a decision to sell a space that the theater owned to a board member. This resulted in the resignation of the managing director who'd been there since 1977. And then before that, in the year 2000, there was another attempted coup by the board to oust summon leadership who objected oh to moving God. to a larger <laughs> space. So like this is all to say there's a long history of surprise, surprise, drama within this theater. Okay. <laughs> nice. So – Back to 2020. Not long after Daniels was hired, the George Floyd protest started. And when that happened, the leader, the theater's leadership decided to board up the theater during the protest, basically to protect the theater. Many businesses did this during the time. It's like shit has changed so much in the past two years. But do you remember, like cities were boarded up? Remember people like there was COVID, of course, but like shit was boarded up. It was weird. Yeah. I vividly remember, I know, I know someone who's doing a lot of uh, driving, road trip travel at the time, and they they saw downtown Denver, parts of some part of which had just been like ransacked and was like in really rough shape. And they, like me, had had no idea just how bad stuff got in certain Michael cities. Tracy? We were a little bit cut off from the gas. It was not Michael Tracy. But uh, no, there were some pockets of real chaos and destruction, and then some of us were just cut off from it. Yeah, yeah. It's... It's it seems like very distant now as uh, as life has returned. Now that everything's fixed. Yeah, everything's yeah. fixed. Yeah. Yeah, now we capitalize the word black. Things have really changed. <laughs> the justice system is exactly the same. The police weren't defunded, but we do capitalize the word black. Okay, so the the theater's leadership decided to board up the theater. And theater members and others in the community got pissed about this, and they staged a protest outside. So according to the New York Times, quote, about 100 activists assembled outside the theater on June 6th and posted messages such as, Black Lives Matter, do they matter to this theater? And this looked especially bad for a place like Victory Gardens because there was 
also a movement at the same time called it was called hashtag open your lobby and this this they, it was like a, a you know it's social media movement and they called on theaters to open up for protesters to rest or use their bathrooms or use their wi-fi or whatever during blm marches and of course this is also at the beginning of covid so you can imagine why a theater or a business or whatever would not want to do this the, are you ke- sorry this was treat look i'm sympathetic to <laughs> To peaceful protesters, but like this was really a thing. Like during during a COVID B a period where there was a lot of like rowdiness and in some cases destruction, it was seen as like against the movement if you don't affirmatively invite them in oh, to yeah. use your space. Oh yeah. I mean, think about who is involved in the theater world. Does this really surprise you? That's true. Yeah, no. and uh, so at the same time, so there was a group of activists within the larger th- theater world, so not just in Victory Gardens, who started a group called We See You Theater. I'm a little unclear about what this group has actually accomplished, but I'm going to read you a little bit from their manifesto on their website. Dear white American theater, our demands are in. Then they call for a minimum of 50% BIPOC representation in programming and personnel, both on and off stage, including at theater companies, unions, agencies, casting companies, the media, public relations, etc. They demand anti-racism training and write, quote, we demand structures for our protection in white spaces and with white artistic collaborators immediately. There's a lot more. They want term limits on executive leadership. They want, quote, a revolutionary approach to funding for BIPOC theaters and theatrical organizations. Here's another quote. We demand compensation for our work and refuse to engage in unpaid labor through internships, donor cultivation, galas, talkbacks, marketing, as or otherwise, as slavery has been abolished. That's a little bit like uh, Colin Kaepernick comparing the NFL to slavery, I think. Well, that was I think that was um, the, the filmmaker, not... Or did Kaepernick say that? It was a scene from the documentary about Kaepernick. I'm not sure Kaepernick's... I think Kaepernick said it, yes. And the filmmaker was Ava DuVernay. Yeah. Um, wait, so way. they're comparing... Again, it's that thing where... Going to galas to slavery. Or like answering questions during talkbacks. And again, it's that thing where like I, I have no doubt that it's easier to get in a theater if you have money. And you're more likely to have money if you're white. But like it's it's slavery. Okay. And also, did they explain what they meant by a revolutionary approach? There was a lot of words on this. I'm going to defer that to... You okay. can look at the website. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. To be clear, we see theater. This was not comprised solely of Vic- Chicago Victory Gardens people. There are apparently over 300 members across the US. But I do think this illustrates this sort of like zeitgeist within theater at that particular moment in time. Okay. So soon after the protests outside the theater, Erica Daniels resigned, as did the board chair. And the administration of the theater did seem to take the protesters' concerns seriously. They pledged to be more transparent in their hiring process, and they engaged some of the very people who had criticized them very publicly in the process of replacing Erica Daniels. Uh, The guy they chose to replace Erica Daniels, his name was Ken Matt Martin. Um, They also named a new board director and a new managing director, all of whom were black. Martin himself was young. He was just 32 at the time of the announcement. He was well-received by people within the company who had been the same people who'd been critical of hiring Erica Daniels, uh, to who, to be clear, had more like years in the theater than in the theater world than Ken Matt Martin. Here's a quote from Lillian Brown. This is a black woman who directed uh, a play about the the Flint water crisis that was uh, supposed to be staged at the theater. She told the New York Times, I was one of the loudmouths yelling at them, and months later they asked me, do you want to be one of the people who help us choose our next artistic director? Victory Gardens Board has done more work at transformation than anyone else I've seen. Uh, This is what she said of Martin's hiring. I think this is an opportunity to show everyone in the National Theater Forum what it can look like to gut and rehab a historically white institution. So so things are going going well if this is your perspective, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to fast forward a little bit. Ken Martin is artistic director, a black woman named Roxana Carter, Connor is acting managing director, and a black nam named Charles Harris, uh, Charles E. Harris II is president of the board. So the top leadership is entirely black. And then in July of this year, the board announces that Ken Matt Martin has been put on leave and Connor is leaving as well. So as you can imagine, this leads to another outcry, and this time it's even bigger. According to the New York Times, 
There's a, a black playwright named Erica Dickerson Dispenza. She denounced what she described as the board's, quote, white supremacist capitalist patriarchal values and announces that she's rescinding the rights to her. She's the one who wrote the play about the, the Flint water, water crisis. She's rescinding the rights to her play. The Actors Equity Association, this is a union for actors and stage managers. They get involved releasing a statement that says, it is deeply disheartening to see an organization that has very publicly wrestled with institutional racism in recent memory again be perceived as unable to support workers of color, without whom Victory Garden Theater could neither exist nor thrive. Uh, Three theater companies that stage work at Victory Gardens all pledged not to work there. 2,000 people signed a petition saying they wouldn't work there. And once again, the Playwrights Ensemble resigned en masse and called for the immediate resignation of the Victory Gardens Board of Directors. This is what they wrote in their public, the public statement they posted. Despite the steadfast commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion that the Victory Gardens Board made in 2020, it is evident that little has shifted in your practice or in the culture that you foster. They also said that they'd recruit, recruited 11 new board members to replace the old ones. There are like Central American dictatorships propped up by the CIA that are more stable and well-functioning than the theater. <laughs> okay. Uh, at the same time, the remaining staff took over the Victory Garden's social media channels and they posted – Quote, we, the nine remaining full-time staffers of Victory Gardens, in solidarity with the resident artist, demand the immediate resignation of the board of directors and the reinstatement of Ken Martin as our artistic director. So the board refused to explain what the fuck is going on because, as you can imagine, this is a personnel issue. They're probably tied. Like, what's the word? Hamstrung? Ham-tied? Their hands are tied. Their hands are tied. That's it. They're all tied up. They're tying one another up. Yes. It's a personnel issue. There are legal reasons why you can't discuss. There could be. There There could could be. be. There totally could be. Yeah. 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 Um, So, I mean, that's just a pretty standard. Sometimes, like, that can be a frustrating response, but I I don't think that should, that silence should be taken as an immediate admission of guilt. Violence. Right. But a lot of people assume that this is racism or at least a failure to live up to their stated anti-racist principles. Lillian Brown, she's the one who directed the Victory Gardens play about the Flint water crisis crisis, and then later commended uh, the theater for bringing her on in in terms of the hiring process. She told the New York Times, quote, put a woman or a person of color in charge, but don't support them at all and thereby push them off a, off a glass cliff. And Martin himself, himself, he says he doesn't know why he's been fired, but he did wrote that, write this on his website. On June 30th, less than 14 months after my hiring, the board informed me that I was being released from my artistic director contract at Victory Gardens with cause. I asked twice in the meeting what what the cause was and was not given any. Instead, I was offered a minimum amount of severance and asked to sign an NDA and give up all claims on future lawsuits. After I cited the lack of cause, the board offered more severance, but still with an NDA. I requested the inclusion of language allowing me to make truthful statements and was refused. I have received no disciplinary notices, formal or informal warnings, and have had no complaints filed against me or any documented infractions. I am declining the offer. It is vitally important that I am able to speak truthfully about the needs of artists and staff. And then he called, uh, he joined the, the staff and playwrights calling for the board to resign. So the question is, why was he fired? And unfortunately, we don't really have like a, any behind the scenes info on this. I tried to find somebody who would who would talk and I was unable to do that. But we do know that there was a conflict over finances. Basically, the board wanted to sell the office space that the theater operated out, out of. It was next door to the theater. And then they wanted to use the money from the sale to buy a space within the theater building to consolidate the property and hopefully save some money in the long run. Martin objected to this. He said that the money should be used elsewhere, including on like things that would seem pretty important, like fixing the heating system. So that's the only sort of documented conflict between the board and Ken Matt Martin. But a lot of people in the theater world seem to think that this is going to dissolve the theater entirely. Like the whole thing, this thing that's been in in place since 1974, they think this is it for them, that it's going to die. But it's, I mean, his account sounds pretty bad for the theater. To fire someone for cause, they don't – but not say – why and to offer so little transparency and try to get him to sign an NDA that all sounds very very shitty it does sound very very shitty why but it doesn't sound like there's any evidence it isn't tr- i guess we only have his side and they they might not be able to say yeah. we don't know we we have we have the board not saying anything and we have him saying that there was no cause 
Okay, so I'm gonna. I want to finish by reading a comment on the new on like one of the New York Times articles about this. This is by someone who goes by the handle actor manager. I just thought this was this was interesting. I've been following this story closely, and it's fascinating to me how it has been turned into a story about race when the board chair is also black. Volunteer boards are rarely as villainous as the artists and staff want to paint this board. Volunteer boards are far more likely to be inept or have their hands tied by professional and legal requirements and most outsider, that most outsiders cannot comprehend. The artistic director, whom many are portraying as, as a wrong savior, is only a decade out of college. He held theater management roles at three important theaters, serving at each for less than two years. That's hardly enough time to learn the board's names, let alone learn important management skills. It's a rare leader with only five years of experience who can handle running a mid-sized theater with all the problems that Victory Gardens had and also know how to work with and manage a board. It looks like the biggest mistake here was hiring a talented artist before he was ready to manage. Sadly, I think the theater industry has recently hired a lot of young, experienced BIPOC artists to manage theaters before they have the skills to lead. The knock on boards will be that these BIPOC leaders weren't given sufficient sufficient support, support that most volunteer boards do not have the time to provide and theaters do not have the resources to hire. Expect more of these stories. I think that's a good point. The board chair is black. The rest of the board is made up of about 40% people of color. So it's possible that this was racism. It's possible it was a a disagreement about finances or management. And we don't really know. If someone listening to this has some inside knowledge, please email me. Katie, I should have told you I've been on the board the whole time. (laughs) This is why you should have asked. No. Uh, it's. I mean, I think that point about turning complicated internal personnel issues into a story about that's just race, full stop, and white right. supremacy. The irony is that, that that oversimplifies things and probably distracts from discussions of things that do in certain ways come down to like race and wealth. Like if there's if there's a dispute over, you know, a heating system that doesn't work, but the board has their eyes on something else, those conversations are important to have and they may in some way tie back to race, but that's a little bit less sexy than accusing this group that is probably not white supremacists, whatever else they are, of white supremacy. Right. I mean, he was hired because of his race. I don't think there's any I mean, like this was part of their anti-racist agenda. And like they were like people responded to the the hiring of his predecessor poorly, in part because she was white. They replaced her with a black man. And then when that didn't work, work out, of course, it's going to look terrible for the board. But as with every other organization, there are internal dynamics here that we probably just don't understand. And this kind of reminded me of a story that I saw you share yesterday from the New York Times, the real estate story. Could you detail that a little bit? Yeah, there was this this story in the Times about a um, Johns Hopkins professor who has studied um, you know racism in the housing market getting two different uh, appraisals for his home. One, when he and the rest of his family, you know, they're all black, were around. Uh, it was appraised at one price, I think around 450000 That was in summer of last year of 2021. And then there was another appraisal some months later, the Times doesn't say exactly when, where he had a white colleague stand in for him, uh, took away the family photos and stuff so that it looked like the house was owned by a white person. And that, in that case, it was appraised hundreds of thousands of dollars higher, like 750. And it's a compelling story, not least because the alleged victim who has filed a lawsuit is a professor who studies this stuff. But people, when I, I tweeted the story sympathetically, people quickly pointed out this neighborhood of Baltimore had had a huge boom that may have coincided with the period in question. We don't know for sure because we don't know when the second appraisal took place, but between summer 2021, summer 2022, crazy spike in housing prices. And I went on Zillow and I confirmed this. This doesn't mean the guy is wrong or that it wasn't racism. It just means that for a lot of these stories, there's at the very least more context that often gets left out of how it's told that would uh, make things a little bit more complex and and make it a little bit harder to pin down the role of race per se. Right, right. And it would not at all surprise me if racism was an element of, of, about this first appraisal. It wouldn't surprise me at all. But like everything in life, to use your tagline, shit's complicated, you know? It just is. Most things are not monocausal. And I have a hard time believing that this that this board that is that has pledged all of these anti-racist values looked at this guy and said, we don't want the black one. We hired him. And then a year later, we're going to fire him because we decided that we're racist now. I think the protesters might be accidentally right in the sense that any 
I mean, this isn't Walmart we're talking about as a theater, but like any organization is mostly just interested in protecting and perpetuating itself. So they they might be accidentally right in that, do these board members, whatever their race, feel a fiery, deep-seated commitment to fighting white supremacy? Probably or not. do they just want to get out of this mess and put on good plays? It's probably the latter. Yeah. So once again, if we have any listeners uh, inside of the Victory Gardens Theater, please tell us what else is going on uh, behind the stage. Please. We're desperate. All right. I think that's it for this week, Jesse. That is it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, we are Blocked Reported. We are produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains. Thank you, Trace. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, as Marx once said, being a leftist means trying to get people you don't like fired. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, you can donate to my campaign for Port Townsend Mayor at BlockedReported.org.